I'm just excited about today, and uh, so let's just open the Word of God together. You guys ready? Um, if you're not ready, it's still coming. So, um, so we've been exploring in the series uh, that Pastor's been in, the Bible series. How many have enjoyed that series? Uh, I have. I've learned a lot in it, and kind of in the vein of, if, if you haven't uh, been able to kind of catch where we're at in terms of our church as we begin this this new year, especially, we're really concentrating into a vein of discipleship. And so we're talking about a lot of foundational things. And so as a part of that, I taught a four-week course called CORE uh, to kind of kick off that effort. And as I was preparing to speak uh, for this message, I kept trying to go a different direction, and God kept drawing me back to the subject of what we covered in the first week of CORE, which talks about how we see God. And as much as I kept kind of bucking against it and trying, like, God, surely there's there's another word that you have for this day, he was like, I want you to talk about how my my people, my kids see me. And so that's what we're going to spend our time on today. So I want to lead off with a question. So when you picture God... What does your image of him look like? When you imagine God and your relationship to him, how do you see him? I want you to to think about that for just a second. Um, How many of you would maybe characterize it like other relationship statuses that we've seen? It's complicated, right? Sometimes it can be, and we're going to kind of dive into that together today. But I want you to see if any of these statements kind of ring true with you, all right? So lean in here with me. See if any of these sound familiar to you. So God's up on a tall ladder, and we say, I'm going to climb up to God now. I'm his kid, and I want to please him more than anything. So we start climbing, rung by rung, working hard until our knuckles are bleeding and both shins are bruised. Finally, we reach the top, only to find that God's moved up 30 more rungs. So with fierce determination, we climb harder and faster, but when we get up there, God has gone up another 30 rungs. This God is that inner voice that's always saying, that's not quite good enough. You'll never quite get there. For others, maybe God is seen as an unsympathetic, emotionally distant, cold God. They may ask, how could God understand my problem? Why would he even care about what I feel? Others of us see God as way too busy with more important things to attend to. For them, one of the recurring images of God involves a long line of people, all the people of the world who are waiting to be attended to by him. And in this picture, We're always at the end of the line. Other people may see God as abusive or as a bully. This God carries a big stick and enjoys using it to control, threaten, or punish people if we misbehave, get out of line, or disappoint Him. And some of us even think that we deserve it. Still, other people see God as unreliable. This God, for one reason or another, cannot be counted on, won't come through. God may be loving one day and super angry the next. He may make promises, but he won't keep them. Some may see an image of God who abandons them. Those who fear abandonment by God try hard to please him, hoping that he will not leave. They're in a crowd, and then suddenly God pulls his hand away from them and disappears, leaving them alone. If maybe you, like me, in seasons of my life have defined God in any of these ways, we have a distorted image of him that causes distance, disconnection. And so I want us to address that directly today through our time looking at the Apostle Paul's life. Today, I'm just going to give you a kind of a fair warning. Today is a little more teaching than preaching, 
Is that okay? If, if it wasn't, I didn't have another answer. So I'm thankful that you guys are, are with me on that. But I want to lead off by talking about a central character that I believe illustrates this subject we're on, we're talking about today, in the life of Saul, initially Saul of Tarsus. Ultimately, his name is changed to Paul. And so let me give you a little bit of like background for him. Is that okay? A little historical context. I love to do that. Um, so Saul, as we find him in the scripture, was a Jew. He was a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin, and he was likely named after another prominent Benjaminite, say that three times fast, uh, King Saul. It's thought because they were from the same tribe, it was likely he might have been named after him. He was born in Tarsus, into Roman citizenship with all of its benefits, which was an advanced and affluent city. Think Alexandria, Egypt, Athens, Greece. This was a big, significant city, an affluent city. Uh, Paul, Saul rather, was sent to school as a boy in Jerusalem and trained by Gamaliel, who was historically revered as one of the greatest teachers in all of Jerusalem, and all of Judaism, rather. I think he was in Jerusalem as well. He returned to Tarsus after that and trained in Greek philosophy and literature. He ultimately was taught the trade of tent making, which was big business in Tarsus. He was very wise in the ways of the world, and he was of Israelite Jewish heritage. He was well-connected and influential in the religious establishment. But he believed that Christianity was a heresy that should be eliminated at all costs. Christianity would have been, you keep in mind, this is the early church. So Christianity wasn't like a word like we have today. This was people who chose to follow Jesus, that chose to see Jesus as the Messiah. He did not believe that. So then we see Saul on the road to Damascus, and we all kind of know this story. Uh, Saul's knocked on, you know, on his tail. Um, a, lot of, a lot of people tend to think that he was knocked off a horse or a donkey. The scripture doesn't actually say that. There's some paintings that kind of allude to that, uh, but, but Saul was blinded by a bright light and knocked down and had a transformative experience. So then as, as we see his story develop, I think what's interesting to note is I always honestly thought that this was another instance in Scripture of God changing somebody's name. That's not actually the case here. So if you thought that, you're welcome for the Bible trivia question that, that comes up next. But actually, uh, Saul later changed his name to Paul. It was common in those days, especially depending on where they would go, to change their name based on the audience they were speaking to. That's actually where Paul's name change came from. And so today I'm probably going to spend most of the time calling him Paul, but if I say Saul, we're talking about the same guy, okay? But Paul actually means small. Uh, historic History kind of records that Paul was probably about four foot six. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Four foot six, three cubits, four foot six. And um, I'm six four by comparison. And so uh, if you've ever doubted yourself because of your stature, I think Paul's a great example of you can be mighty in the Lord and be small of stature, amen? So Paul chose this second name for communicating with the Greco-Roman audience that would later be able to receive from him easier. I think that's why you kind of get that phrase, when in Rome, uh, Paul, Paul would adjust to the culture to be able to speak to them. 
He wrote 13 to 14 of the 27 books of the New Testament. He made three long missionary journeys throughout the Roman Empire, planting churches, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and giving strength and encouragement to early Christians. Paul saw that the gospel was for the Gentiles as well. That would be all of us, non-Jews. Paul was martyred for his faith in Christ by the Romans in about AD 67. So what happened to this guy? As we get in the message, what happened? We have a guy who grew up affluent, trained, probably super religious, right? He was trained by Pharisees. He, was a, he called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees, if you can imagine that. Um, but then something happened. And what we're going to be talking about today in the title of my message is how to repair how I see God, repairing how I see God. We see that in Saul's story here, ultimately Paul's story. So let's pray together as we jump in today. Holy Spirit, lead and guide our time. I pray that we'd have ears to hear and eyes to see and that we would get a new revelation of who you are to us. In Jesus' name, and all God's children said, amen. Amen. So I'm going to read a little chunk of scripture here from Acts. This is the story where we see Saul's transformative experience. This is Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, by the way, this would have been Christianity, because Jesus was what? The way, the truth, and the life. Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So it wasn't enough for, Paul, for Saul to persecute them and to breathe out murderous threats, he was going to go track them down. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Listen to what he, look at what he says in verse 5. Who are you, Lord? And notice here that Saul didn't recognize the Lord he thought he was serving. In that moment, he did not recognize the Lord that he thought he was serving. So Jesus helps him. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what to do. Savage Jesus knocks him down, <laughs> tells him who he is, and says, now get up, go into the city and wait. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind. He did not eat nor drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. So unlike Saul, you know, Annie kind of had it figured out. Like he recognized the voice of the Lord. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. This would not have been Judas Iscariot, by the way. It's just a common, more common name back then, but he was on a cool street, uh, straight street. You're welcome. Um, those are the jokes my kids roll their eyes at. Um, go to the house of Judas on straight street. Ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man. So what Ananias is saying here is, I, this guy kills people like me. 
And he says, and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem, he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. I like it how we sometimes as Christians like to explain stuff to God like he doesn't know, right? And I was just like, no, God, he kills Christians, and he's coming here to arrest all who call on your name. And, and God's like, his next word, go. <laughs> this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, brother Saul, <laughs> The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, look at this, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. Say, he could see again. He got up, was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Um, I had a situation when I was in sixth grade where I had a, a, a dear English teacher named Miss Brown, Miss Clarine Brown. And one day she called my mom in for a, a, a conference because she's like, Miss Strait, uh, she wrote, you know, every, every remember in the classes back in the day we had overhead projectors that you'd write on and then kind of reveal it as you go, the teachers would do that. All right, she had that and I was sitting near the back of the room and she said, Miss Strait, um, Every time I look at Mark, he's squinting. And it was because up until that point, I'd never known I needed glasses, but uh, I was getting headaches all the time. And Miss Brown would like gradually move me up towards the front of the room until I was close, like very front of the room. The desk was even slid out a little further than the front row so that I could see the overhead. And ultimately that led to me getting glasses. And I was not a bad baseball player up to then. I was a catcher. Um, but after I got glasses, I became an all-star catcher. Uh, I literally did. It was amazing how much I could see. And so we're going to be kind of talking about getting some new glasses today, all right? Fixing the broken image of how we see God. So I've got only two points for you today, just two points. Um, how, number one is how it gets broken. How does our image of God get broken? So what are some of the things that affect our image of God, whether good or bad? So let's just, these aren't, this is not an exhaustive list, but just a few things. Our family, right? Our family of origin, where we come from. Our discipleship, our spiritual formation, or maybe lack of it. The spiritual leaders and influences in our lives, maybe pastors, maybe teachers, maybe people in that type of role. The culture, or what of it we allow into our hearts, Religion or theology, what belief systems we were raised in, and certainly our life experiences. All those things, and probably many more we could name, affect, and in some cases positively, but many times negatively, how we see God. Do we see him as kind, loving, and generous? Or do we see him as angry, unfair, and distant? How does our image of God get broken? Life happens, right? We go through things. Life throws us unfair curves. We lose the faith. We lose heart. Let's look at the words of Jesus here in Matthew 22, verse 37. It says, Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And second is equally important. So he puts these on the same 
platform. Equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and the prophets are based on these two commandments. How many know if you don't believe God loves you as you are, it's really difficult to love yourself? And it's really even more difficult to love others, right? So when we see God through these broken, fractured lenses, it creates distance. It causes us to, to be frustrated, right? It causes us to feel like we're not being heard or he's not near. Um, how hard is it for us to love a God when we have this kind of wrong image or broken lens that we're looking through? Doesn't it make it difficult? Anybody else besides me in this church today had that problem? I saw a quote this week. It was actually, uh, if any of you are doing the Bible recap, kind of Bible study uh, devotional uh, this week, I heard a quote uh, from an author and Bible teacher from the Village Church, Jen Wilkin, says, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. So the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. So if we don't know him, then it makes it difficult to believe him. And sometimes we can know it, but not believe it. And I spent a pretty good bit of time there myself. 1 John 4.16 speaks to this. It says, John says, And we have known in our head, we have believed in our heart the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Amen? We have known and believed the love that God has for us. So Paul knew the law of Moses and the prophets inside and out. But like many of us, through the broken lens of his own beliefs, his own religion, his own experiences, it caused him to persecute Christians and the very Messiah that he believed he was fighting for. He was looking for one, but he wasn't looking for Jesus. Paul was present during the time that Jesus was crucified. A lot of theologians believe he would have been in the city even when it happened. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but he certainly was alive during that time, and he would not have been a Jesus fan, okay? He would have, he would have labeled him a heretic, just like the masses that killed him. So when we look at how interesting this picture is, is through this, again, we're looking through the story of Paul through his lenses, right? All these experiences... The scripture doesn't tell us a whole lot about Paul's parents, but we do know that there was something in him from his earliest days of formation and his beliefs that caused him to see God through a completely broken lens, a distorted lens. So most of us get the initial general concept of God from our parents. Would you agree with that? So if you were like me and you had a really good dad and a really loving dad, it's, it's super easy to relate that to the Heavenly Father, right? However, if you didn't have a dad growing up, if he, if he left or maybe he was, you know, he died or, or maybe he left the family, certainly many of us have experienced that. How many knows that experience feeds into how we see God the Father? It directly correlates with how well we're able to see him. And that can create a very fractured image. Um, so how does that negatively influence our image of God? How do those things play into this? So, so parents and authority figures didn't listen. If that's the case, then we'll struggle to pray because we believe God won't listen. 
If our parents or our spiritual influences were manipulative or abusive, we'll have to walk a tightrope every day to get God's love. If our parents were absent, we think, I believe in God, he just doesn't care about me and doesn't know me. If our parents had anger problems, we fear the wrath of God and hide from church so that we aren't seen. If our parents were broke, we develop a poverty mentality or in some cases pursue money for security. These are just some of the lies we believe about God and how they impact our lives. If our concept of God is wrong, it builds and creates a built-in distorted filter for how we see him. And that is my burden for you guys today. God wants, this is his message for us. He wants us to see him as he is. He want, Why? Because he wants to be in close relationship with us. And if we are struggling, like I've been talking about so far in this, this message, about how it gets broken, if we've been struggling this way, it is super difficult to see him rightly, and human nature drives us from him. Right? It drives us away from him, because if we don't know and believe it's easy to dismiss. It's easy to keep him at arm's length. Is that right? Is that true? So how many of you have had someone in your life tell you about a person that you'd never met and explain how horrible a person they were, right? And so you judge, that's a horrible person. I'm going to stay away from them. And then a little while later, you actually meet the person, you talk to them, and you find out they're not that way at all. They're like super cool. Anybody ever have that experience? It's kind of like what happens with us in our relationship with God. Sometimes that picture gets painted wrong by people, by pastors, if we can be honest, by spiritual authority. But when that happens, it completely distorts how we see. You know, think of it, Genesis 3, prime example. Adam and Eve went from the close personal friendship with God to all of a sudden thinking God didn't want the best for them, that he was holding something back from them. What changed? Genesis 3. The enemy said, did God really say? Right? And their image twisted, and it cost them. Right? It affects the arc of our lives. So I just, I I debated on whether to, to cover this. I don't have time to get too deep, but I wanted to speak to this. Life experiences have a lot to do with how we see God. And there's a whole message that Pastor did on this two years ago. I'd be happy to send you the link to that kind of addresses this more specifically. But I'd be remiss if I didn't at least address the fact that sometimes we go through hard things and it affects our ability to relate to God. It's the death of a child, a serious illness or disease, a divorce, and its effect on you, on the kids. And I just want to remind all of you, that those things aren't God's will. When Adam and Eve fell, sin and death entered the world. Okay? And God, because of his desire for relationship with us, gave humanity something called free will. Because without free will, there's no choice. And without choice, there's no love. He could have just programmed a bunch of robots to worship him and do all of, his, all of his Ten Commandments, right? Is God strong enough and powerful enough to do that? Absolutely. Why did he do this the way that he did? Because he wanted us to choose him. Without choice, there is no love. 
And so within this picture, what we find ourselves in many times is going through very difficult life experiences that were not our fault, that were not God's fault, but a, an outcome of where we are in the world, an outcome of what happened when sin and death entered the world. But I want to remind you that while Jesus promised that we'd have trouble, John 16, 33 says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And what's important to remember, guys, is that all these life experiences that we have that shape how we see God sometimes are temporary. They do not last. Because if you lost a child, they're not lost. We get to be with them again. If you lost a spouse, guess what? They're not gone. We are spiritual beings have a very, having a very temporary human experience. So it's all about context. Eternity is eternity. This life on earth is that. Don't let your life experience here on earth affect how you see your heavenly father. Amen? So for Paul, the Greek and Roman ideas that he grew up with did not haunt his childhood. He grew up with the Israelite tradition and heritage, but his image of God was distorted and he got off course, likely through religiousness, piety, pride. Anybody ever met those people? I mean, none of us have been one, so it would have to be people we've met. It's not true. Um, I see Paul a lot like us, living our lives through a distorted view of who God is and making a mess of it, right? And then one day he meets us on our own road to Damascus on our way to do more damage and he knocks us off our feet. Anybody have a, one of those experiences where God kind of knocks you off your feet? It, by his grace, not out of anger, to speak to us about who he really is. So that's, Point number one, how it gets broken. Point number two, how to repair it. How to repair it. And this is not an exhaustive list. It's just a really good starting place. And there are going to be three keys here. So if you're taking notes under how to repair it, there's going to be three things I speak to. Two of them are truths. The first truth is that we have to believe that God is completely good. How do we repair this broken or distorted image of God? We have to believe heart gut, soul. We have to believe that God is good. God is good. And all the time. This is his number one attribute. It's where all the other attributes come from. And if he's not good, then our faith is pointless. Bottom line. If he is not good, we can go home. And I Trust me when I tell you I trimmed about 8,000 scriptures out of this message on the cutting room floor because there's a gazillion of them, but I just wanted to hit a few short ones to just kind of underline his goodness for us. Psalm 119.68, this is David proclaiming, you are good and you do good. Mark 10.18, no one is good but one, that is God. Psalm 27, 13, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, all right? Not in heaven, we would experience his goodness here. 
And then Psalm 145, 9, David again, the Lord is good to all. How many? All. And his tender mercies are over all his works. Problem with us people, anybody ever had a problem with people? Is that we as people look at people and we judge them by their actions. We judge them as good or bad. The cool thing about God is everything that he does flows out of who he is. His goodness determines everything that comes from him to us as his kids. His motive, his heart towards us. And so let's look in Exodus 33 real quick. And this is kind of jumping over to Moses, but it's an important point kind of as it relates to God's goodness. In this part of the story in Exodus 33, Moses at this point had already spoken to the burning bush, okay? He'd already seen crazy, ridiculous miracles that God had done. And then he had been on a mountain with God so and lived to tell about it, by the way. And so he's already experienced God in all these different ways. But then we find Moses here in verse 18 saying, please show me your glory. Then God said, I will make my goodness pass before you. Now, isn't that interesting? Moses said, show me your glory. In other words, God, show me what you're known for. Show me who you are. Show me what you're better at than anybody else. And God, out of all the things that he could have shown Moses that day, and he has a toolkit, guys, right? He chose, I'm going to let my goodness pass before you. Out of all of the attributes. So when you think about, to put it in a kind of human context, when we talk about glory, you know, think about some of the, the people that we, we may know or recognize. Like, for instance, when I say Michael Jordan, what do you think about? Greatest basketball player ever. Don't come at me with LeBron. Don't come at me with LeBron. Okay. Um, MJ was clutch, right? He won six titles, two three-peats. My opinion is if he hadn't taken a couple of years off to try this baseball thing, they'd have won eight in a row, right? But here's a guy who never lost the game seven in the finals because he never played in one. What is Michael Jordan's glory? His gift of basketball, right? Abraham, his radical faith, the father of our faith, Mother Teresa, her kindness, her selfless compassion and love for the people, the people of India. Michelangelo, his creative artistic genius, he, he painted the creation of Adam. But here we see Moses desiring to know God in a deeper way, and what God chooses to show him is his goodness. Exodus 34, verse 6 says, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. All of those attributes flow from his abounding goodness. So let's explore that just a smidge further. If we know that God is infinite, do you guys know that? He is infinite. We are finite. He is infinite, meaning he has no boundaries. He has no limits. He cannot be measured. He is outside of time. So if he is good and he is infinite, then God is infinitely good, right? There are no limits to his goodness. 
His goodness can't be measured. He's also immutable, which means he won't change. So his goodness never changes. He is omnipotent. His goodness is unlimited, just like his power. God is just. His goodness is impartial. God is omnipresent. His goodness is everywhere. It is all around us. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect or mature gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation nor shadow of turning. And all that phrase, shadow of turning, really speaks to there is, in him there's no shadow or distortion. God is perfect light. That scripture says, comes down from the Father of lights. When God's light shines like it did on Saul that day, there are no shadows. There's no distortion. You see him for exactly who he is. And everything that's good came from God above, like coffee. <laughs> Amen? Or, or maybe like Andy's uh, custard. Or, um, <laughs> or like this time of year, Reese's peanut butter eggs. <laughs> Praise God. But if your image of God is that he is not good, that he is tricky or deceitful, then we can't trust him, Right? We can't relate to him. We keep him at a distance. Just to remind you, God does not have ulterior motives. He has one motive. His motive toward you is always love and goodness, right? He doesn't dangle carrots in front of us. He's not disappointed or angry at us. And if any of you have felt this way as I have at times in my life, I'm here to tell you that he can repair it. We have to believe that he is good and only wants good for us. Uh, I grew up in a denomination that we would have youth rallies uh, fairly often. And so most of them ended about the same way, by the preacher scaring us kids down to the altar to get saved. <laughs> okay. they, would, they would say things like, if you were to drive off this parking lot tonight into the road and get hit by an 18-wheeler, would you go to heaven or hell? All right? Anybody ever go to that youth rally? Okay, a few of you. Well, while an effective tool at getting kids to the altar, um, here's what I'll tell you one of the, the negative outcomes of that was for me. I saw God as really angry and ready to take me out. Was it right? No. Do those people mean, you know, ill by it? I don't think they did. I think they were doing what they'd been told to do or what they thought would be, you know, generate a full altar that night. But ultimately, we all experience things like that that cause us to see God incorrectly, to see him through a distorted filter. And so let's kind of continue. There's a, a second truth that I want us to look at here. That's this. We have to believe that God is love. So we have to believe that he is good, and we have to believe that he loves us. We have to replace lies with truth, guys. So we all know John 3, 16, right? For, for God so judged the world that he gave his only begotten son. Oh, wait, no. Love the world that he gave his only begotten son. Because love is his only motive for us. His heart for us is love. So let's look back again at what Jesus commanded in Matthew 22 for just a sec. We read it earlier, but this is verse 37. Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God. You must 
It's a command, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. The second one is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and the prophets are based on these two commandments. Part of what Jesus was saying there is when he says the entire law, that would have been the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets would have been representative of the Old Testament, and that's the only Bible they had at that point. So what Jesus was saying is the whole Bible is wrapped up in those two things. If you can't do anything else, love God Love people, it's going to work out. Amen? But why, why, Jesus, are you commanding me to love? Love's a feeling. Right? I want to talk just a sec about that. There's Hollywood love, and there's God's love. Here's the problem we all deal with every day as citizens of America. We think that love is a feeling. I'm here to tell you that those accompany it, but it is not love. Love actually is a choice. It's a choice that when made and pursued, feelings and emotions follow. Right? Did you catch that? Love is a choice I make, and when I make it and pursue it, feelings and emotions follow. Love is not something we accidentally fall into or trip out of, okay? And I can't tell you how many times I've, I've sat across from people struggling with this, and they're like, well, I just don't love him anymore, or I just don't love her anymore, or I've fallen out of love. No, you chose to. Maybe it was a slow fade, but you chose to at some point stop pursuing them, and the feelings started to go away, and you ascribe that because we live in the Hollywood society we live in of, well, I don't feel it. It must not must be, be done. No, guys, love is a choice. It is a choice we make intentionally every day to pursue. Why? Because God loved us first. Amen? When people tell me stuff like that, you know, I, I use a Greek word called balagna. Um, that's baloney, okay? That is baloney. You believed a lie. We do lots of things we don't feel like doing, don't we? We pay the bills. You know, we go to work, right? There's plenty of things I do for my kids that I don't necessarily enjoy sometimes. But why do I do it? I love them. There's things I do for Elena I don't enjoy sometimes. Why do I do that? Because I love her. It's a choice I've been making for 25 years. And just to clarify terms a smidge, and I don't want to get too much into the whole Greek thing, but I think it's really cool and really important. So if you'll humor me just a second. When we talk about love, whether it's John 3.16 or the love that Jesus is speaking about in Matthew 22, we're talking about agape love. You've heard this talked about before, but just really quickly for review. Agape speaks to love that is taken pleasure in and longed for. Agape love is a love of choice. And it's a love of pursuit. Agape love is unconcerned with self. That'll preach. How many have been a little selfish? Uh, Agape love is unconcerned with self and only concerned with the greatest good of another. Agape isn't born just out of emotions, feelings, familiarity, or attraction, but from the will as a choice that we make and commit to. Somebody said amen. Amen. Agape love does not expect anything in return. Man, that hits us, doesn't it? 
How many times have you felt that towards someone else? Well, I would, I'd love them if they would, you know, I could, I could go there if they would just do. No, that's called conditional love, which really isn't love. If it's conditional, then it's not love. Love is complete. Love is all I am loving all you are. Mess and everything, right? Uh, Pastor Robert, I've heard him quote this, say it this way, love is a part of your soul which is made up of your mind, will, and emotions. The way you think and the decisions you make cause your emotions to follow. We've said it this way before. Your emotions can be in the car, but they can't be in the driver's seat, right? They can ride along with you. God created them. He gave us a mind, will, and emotions, but he did not design emotions to sit in our driver's seat. Can you imagine if all of us every day were led by our emotions? It'd be a hot mess, y'all. It can be in the back. Like, we'll listen to it. Nope, nope, that's a lie. How many know your emotions lie sometimes? It's kind of what I'm speaking to here. And I've, you know, I've had people say some things like this to me too. It's like, well, but that doesn't apply to, to like marriage. I mean, you have to feel like, you know, they're talking about eros love, like romantic feelings, right? I was like, no, actually Jesus speaks to that. In Ephesians 5.25, it says, Husbands love, this is agape love, your wives like Christ loves the church. So he can command it because he is it, right? God is love. His motive toward us is love. What he wants us to do is to love like he loves. In his letter to the Romans, so this is our boy Paul, back to, back to Paul. This is after the, the transformation and revelation that he's received, Romans 5.8. This is Paul saying this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What is that speaking to? That's unconditional we didn't even choose him yet, right? We didn't make the choice yet. And Jesus said, before you show up, I love you. Before you show up, I'm dying for you, right? Unconditional pre-salvation love. That's big. Romans 8.35, Paul says, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Great question. Let's answer it. Paul answers it in verse 38. I am convinced. Now listen, we got to think about Paul, this journey he's been on, okay? From Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle. Think about this transformation. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky, none in the earth below, indeed nothing in all of creation, I think Paul's covering it, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. What can separate us from his love, y'all? Nothing. Nothing you do, nothing you don't do, nothing you ever will do or ever did in your past. Nothing separates you from his love. It is complete. It is whole. It is unconditional. Sounds like Paul's had a revelation of God's love. You think? Once a very broken image of God, repaired and restored. And the third thing under how to fix it 
is we have to cultivate a personal relationship with Jesus. How many know we can only get as close to God as our belief of him will allow us? This is back to the quote earlier. We have to know, we have to believe. If we have that twisted, it makes it very difficult for us to have a, when I say personal relationship, I'm talking about a friendship. Like we say personal, that's a kind of a religious term. You have a personal relationship with Jesus and that we kind of gloss over it. I just want to bring it home for us a second. We're talking about a personal relationship. We're talking about a relationship like I have with my wife. We're close. We're intimate. We talk every day. We know each other's feelings. We know each other's thoughts, right? That's the type of relationship that Jesus wants with us. But if we're dealing with all of these distorted images, broken glasses, charred lenses, we can't see them right. And it affects everything, everything about our faith, everything about how we engage God. And as a pastor, sometimes I have people come to me and they ask me, you know, pastor, would you mind praying for me? Would you mind, you know, giving me a word? And we're a church that believes in prophetic gifts, and we're a church that we, we, we operate in that. But how many know that God speaks to us individually? The Old Testament model died when Jesus died. Because if you don't, you know, just for a quick recap, in the Old Testament, in order for, for the, the sins of the people to be atoned for, it had to go through the whole ritual. There was a priest, and he would have to do all the things, murder, animals, blood sacrifices, all that. Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice for us one time for, forever. And when that happened, the, the temple veil was ripped from top to bottom. I don't know if you've ever studied that out, but it's like a three or four inch thick curtain. It's not a curtain. He ripped it in half. And what that allows for us to do is engage him personally. He called us all to be priests, Right? We don't have to go through someone else now. We get direct access to him. And so he wants that type of personal daily relationship with all of us. All of this affects whether or not I believe his presence is going to heal me, his spirit is going to fill me, or that his word is the truth. So my question is, how do you see him today? Do you see him as a good father? who loves you unconditionally and wants a close relational friendship with you? If not, it's okay. But we can repair and restore it today. We can see that as we do, God's promise is that it will radically change us, just like in the life of our friend Saul, ultimately Paul today. And that's a drastic example. Hopefully none of us have been present for the stoning of you know Stephen and you know, calling out for murderous threats against, you know, people. But our sin's the same, right? So go ahead and stand with me. <clears throat> so I just want to share a little bit of a personal, I guess, footnote from my story. I talked about our, our youth rallies that were, they weren't all bad, but you know what I mean. There were definitely some difficult things to process through. And I just would tell you that it was not until my 20s, about my mid-20s, when I really started getting a better revelation of who God was. Because in my mind, up to that point, I'd always seen God as kind of this taskmaster, 
there were a lot of rules I had to follow. And if I did good, then I could be okay with them. And if I did bad, then I couldn't be okay with them. The problem was the distance was me because God wasn't moving. But what would happen is, and you've, some of you have heard me share this before, but in, in a visual representation, this is how it looked. I would read my Bible. I would go to church. I'd be nice to the lady at the convenience store. I'd help the lady at the supermarket get something off the high shelf. You know, I would do all these things. And then I'd have a day where I lost it. And I would go all the way back to the beginning. And I'd start back over. Okay, God, I'm, I, I'm sorry. I'm going to repent, which we should, you know. But the difference between this picture and reality is that when we repent, God doesn't send us back to the beginning of the game board. He puts us right back with him where we were. And that is one of the things in my story that I had to really, really work through with the Lord so that when I had a bad day where I didn't read my Bible or I got mad at the lady at the restaurant for something or whatever it may look like, or I was mean to my kids and had to apologize to them. That's happened a couple of times. Um, what I had to, to fix with him is the understanding that he loves me unconditionally. That he didn't need me. He didn't need me to be perfect. He didn't need me to have. Didn't need me to have it all together. He needed me to love him and to rely on him. And by virtue of that relationship, I could experience his goodness, his grace, his mercy, and his love. Amen. So bow your heads with me, if you would. There's two things I want to pray for. And maybe I'm hoping in all of this today that God spoke to you or the Holy Spirit was speaking to you. But the first thing I want to, a group of people I want to pray for are those that just in my talking today and by hearing the word, you've recognized that you've been away from God. Maybe you were like the Saul. Maybe you had a distorted image of God that caused you to run away from him. I experienced that at one time in my life. If that's you, I want to pray over you today. I want to pray a prayer over you. I want you to pray with me. So if, if that's you in this moment, just lift your hand. Kind of as a sign to the Lord. Thank you. Anybody else? I want to fix my broken image with you, Lord. I want to draw close to you again. If that's you, just lift your hand. All right, thank you. So pray a prayer something like this with me. Those who raised your hands, thank you for doing that. God sees. God sees. And he loves you. What he wants me to tell you today is that he loves you unconditionally. He doesn't need you to perform better. He doesn't need you to act better. He doesn't need you to get it all together. He just needs you to love him like he loves you. And so let's pray a prayer together. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of what I've had in the way between you and I. I ask that your shed blood would cover me completely 
cover my sin, cover my shame, and give me a fresh revelation of your goodness, of your grace, and of your love for me today. Help me fix my broken image of you so I can see you as you are. Come into my heart to be my very best friend, my Savior, and my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Keep your heads bowed if you would. If, if any of you are in here, or maybe like I was at one point in my life, where it's clear just, just by what we've shared today that your relationship with God is distant, and it's because you've seen him from a very broken or distorted lens. I want to pray over you because today he's going to heal that. He can fix in a moment what we can't do in a lifetime, guys. So if that's you, I want to pray over you. But if that's you, if you just lift your hand really quickly, I want to pray for, for you guys. So if you would say that my image of God has been broken and it's kept me distant from him, but I want to change that today. Lift your hand. Thank you. Pray with me. Father, we just ask for forgiveness for we've got it wrong. Lord, where maybe we've stepped away from you for whatever the reason, from life experiences or bad church experiences or bad relationships with our parents or whatever the cause may be, I pray today that you administer healing to your kids. Lord, let them experience you, the fullness of your goodness, the fullness of your love. We cast out all fear. There is no shame. There's no condemnation in you. There's only love. So I pray that each of these would experience that today, that they would see you rightly. They would see you just as you are. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Hey, Pastor Marty here from Pathway Church. And I just want to say thank you for joining us. And I want to encourage you to get connected and stay connected. And there's several ways you can do that. Number one, you can download the Pathway app and we are all the time offering resources and information on that app for you. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you do, make sure you click the bell so that you never miss any life-giving and life-changing content as we add it to the channel. And then also, uh, make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook. Look, our hope and heart for you is that you walk in the purpose for which God made and created and redeemed you for. We love to connect people to purpose. We thank you for giving us this opportunity. And if you're ever in Longview or you are in Longview, I'd love to invite you to join us in person each weekend. Listen, I pray God's best for your life. I believe if you follow Jesus, your best is ahead.